This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. The button pushing stops here. Plug the radio in. You are listening to Evidence for Faith. This is the Christian worldview radio program that helps you to become a thinker and to be able to live in a worldview that uh, consists of a, a Christian foundation, and it will help you to understand why you believe what you believe. Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Mike Larrakis. And I'm Keith Kendricks, and we welcome you here listening to us today. I've got a quote that I thought was very appropriate to the theme of our show. This is from Blaise Pascal. Now, he was a French philosopher, and he says, quote, Men despise religion. They hate it and fear it is true. To remedy this, we must begin by showing that religion is not contrary to reason, that it is venerable, to inspire respect for it. Then we must make it lovable. To make good men hope it is true, finally, we must prove it is true. Venerable because it has perfect knowledge of man, lovable because it promises the true good, close quote. And that is what this show is about, is to teach people how venerable and good Christianity is and how true it is. So it provides benefits, and it's true. I've got a news item, too, Mike. I think you'll appreciate this, because we've been talking about some of the scientific blogs and some of the atheists' blogs in past shows. This one is an item that came across from Breakpoint, and it's about a New York Times columnist, Virginia Heffernan, who wrote about a scientific blog website that is reportedly, quote, the most influential science blogging network in the world. Okay. What did she find at this blog? Did she find that graduate students or researchers or scientists and science authors were sharing information and suggesting new areas of scientific study? Actually, no. What she found is, quote, chip off one-liners that promote their books, jeer at smokers, fat people, and churchgoers. So she found nothing but ad hominem arguments, talking about religious leaders as idiots or worse, all under the banner of science. And this is how she described that the writers were pursuing their own personal agendas, quote, charged with bigotry. So there you go for one of the top scientific blogs on the Internet. She said it was, quote, science versus religion, and that debate is really misleading. Christianity is not anti-science, as we have been over many times on this show. Here's what Breakpoint has to say. Quote, science properly understood is one of Christianity's great gifts to the world. As writers like Rodney Stark have shown, it was Christians who believed that they could understand and explore the universe precisely because they believed it was created and its laws were ordered by a rational God. Close quote. I have a, uh, a quote for you, Keith. Uh, this is a, uh, an Albert Einstein quote, yeah. one of the great, great scientific minds of the 20th century. And he said this. He said, a man of science is a poor philosopher. Now, here's, here's the issue at hand. Science says nothing. Science gives you facts. The scientists interpret the facts. Now, depending on your persuasion, you know, your worldview, will actually dictate the way you interpret those facts. Absolutely. Okay, so a scientist who is an atheist is going to look at the same set of data that you and I might look at and come up with a different conclusion because he's looking through glasses that have nothing to do with a Christian worldview or intelligent design or a creator God. 
and he doesn't realize how his philosophy is affecting what he's looking at. So many, many scientists have not been trained in philosophy, and they don't even understand that some of the things that they theorize about are illogical and irrational in the first place, and any philosopher, any good philosopher would set them straight. So this article from Breakpoint closes by saying, quote, Yes, we Christians are jeered at because we insist that scientists' actions should be constrained by moral considerations and because we deny that scientific expertise alone qualifies people to answer the big question, how now shall we live? Mm -hmm. So that was a great article. Mike and I went on a great trip this weekend. We left Friday and drove for three hours down to Maryland. And it was a great time, don't you think, Mike? Yes, we uh, we actually learned some things this weekend. We went to a, uh, a Christian apologetics uh, program um, down in um, uh, Mount Airy, which is about a half an hour west of Baltimore. It took us about three hours to get there, and um, uh, we enjoyed ourselves immensely. Actually, your your son Stephen came, went with us. That's right. Who is he's what twenty three now, Keith? Yep, and he's a first lieutenant in the army. That's correct. And um, it was great to have him along, and uh, good to see a, a young Christian mind being uh, formed and shaped and uh, engaging in um, philosophic discourse uh, relative to the great scientific and uh, religious minds in the uh, country at this conference. So Mike and I would like to tell you about this conference and tell you what we learned at it. It was one of those conferences where there were multiple speakers, so there were three or four speakers that had very interesting topics about the evidence for the Christian worldview, everything from is the Bible true to how do we help kids, students, our children, to know that it's true and not to be lied to, not to be deceived by the competing philosophical theories that are out in this world. And more than that, Keith, uh, he hit us with, uh, one of the speakers hit us with a uh, a very disturbing uh, set of uh, statistics, and these were some statistics, and I'll share these with the listening audience, about what a survey of Christian teenagers revealed. Um, number one, that 33% of Christian teens believe that reincarnation is possible. Now that's Christian, that they're claiming to be Christians, or this is evangelical? No, these are kids in a Christian youth group. Okay. Okay. Um, 33% believe that reincarnation is a possibility, 23% believe in miracles, um, 42% believe in e evil spirits, and here's the most disturbing... Now, hang on, hang on. Did you say, how many believe in miracles? 23%. Half the number of people who believe uh, in evil spirits. Okay, so, so that means that 80% of Christian kids that go to youth group do not believe that miracles are possible. Correct. Wow. Yeah. But here's the most disturbing one, that 48% of these Christian teens believe that there are many religions that will get you into heaven. Wow. So pick your choice. You know, there's it's the many path theory, you know, many paths to the top of the mountain type thing. Right, which happens to be opposite from what the Bible teaches us. Correct. I think Jesus uh, said it himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh to the Father but through me. Uh, that's a very exclusive claim. That's not a claim that I'm making, but it's a claim that I believe because Jesus, I believe, proved himself over and over again to be the Son of God. No other man has as many miracles uh, under his belt as uh, hist historically supported by the Bible as well as um, extra-biblical evidences. Absolutely. So let's let's get into that. One of the—well, the first speaker that we heard Friday night was Dr. Craig Hazen. He is a professor of comparative religion at Biola University. He's also the founder of the Master of Arts program in Christian apologetics, the program that I went through and graduated in 2007. Very funny guy, lots of jokes, uh, very entertaining, but he has a very serious message— one that we've talked about in the past on the show, but I think it's really worth going over today. We'll briefly cover his talk that he does to people who are seriously interested in religious views and 
interested in seeking a religion for themselves. So he has five reasons that a thoughtful person who's on a religious quest would start their quest with Christianity. Why start with Christianity instead of some other religion? That's what his message was, and it was uh, extremely valuable. And, you know, the the first thing that, that really grabbed me, Keith, uh, with respect to these five reasons that somebody should start with Christianity is that Christianity is probably the only religion that's actually testable. Yeah, that's his first point. Now, what do I mean by testable? You can research it. You can look at historical documents that are extra-biblical. You can look at archaeological findings. Uh, you can look at evidences outside of the Bible that would suggest that what happened 2,000 years ago is absolutely correct. Right. And he referred to 1 Corinthians 15:12 through 19, which says, But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. So the way Dr. Hazen describes it is that Paul has essentially hung Christianity by a thread. And if that thread breaks, then all of Christianity would fall and should fall. So as seekers of truth, if you are really interested in seeking truth, you ought to consider Christianity first because it's testable. It opens itself up for investigation and testable inquiry. You know, Keith, I think that the most significant part about Paul's uh, comments there in 1 Corinthians is that, um, and people who don't know who Paul is, Paul was the most prolific writer of the New Testament, the Pauline epistles, the letters to the various churches, the early churches in the New Testament. Paul was not a believer. He was one of the greatest persecutors of the early church. Started Uh, out being, right? Sure, yeah. He would stone stone the early Christians, uh, break up their churches, arrest arrest the believers, uh, do anything that he could could do for the uh, the Jewish authorities to uh, break up this early Christian movement. But then he had an encounter with the risen Christ. And Christ got him on the road one day and said, uh, why are you persecuting me? And he, was, he struck Paul with blindness. Right. And uh, Paul had this encounter with Jesus and became a believer at that point and then became the most prolific writer of the New Testament. So strong evidence that Christianity is true because it explains why this ardent anti-Christian would become a Christian. Correct. So upon careful investigation, then the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is actually found to be one of the best attested facts of ancient history. So you definitely should consider Christianity first because it's testable. Yeah, you can research it. You can look at the archaeological evidences and the extra-biblical evidences, which we will get into, hopefully, if we have time in this show. And not to mention the fact that if, if you're in a court of law, the most important testimony comes from the eyewitnesses. Right. And there are many, many eyewitness accounts that are recorded uh, about the life and times of Jesus and the miracles. It's not enough to say, well, I don't think that Jesus of Nazareth ever w- existed and that he was not a historical figure. That's, that's rubbish. There's too many documents to suggest outside of the Bible that Jesus lived during that time frame. All right. The second point, Christianity is a free gift. So Christianity should be considered first because it offers salvation as a free gift. Now, the speaker was, as I said, a professor of comparative religion, so very familiar with other religions. And he had asked a Buddhist expert from his university, 
how many lifetimes you would have to go through to reach nirvana in Buddhism, as an example. And he said basically one times 10 to the 60th lifetimes. So that's a one with 60 zeros after it. One that, times 10 to the 60th power. Yep, or one with 60 zeros after it. So that is how many lifetimes you have to go through to guarantee that you get to nirvana. That, that's a lot of reincarnations, even if you're a bacterium that can duplicate every 20 minutes. So you basically are guaranteed of spending your entire life in this investigating Buddhism just to get salvation. Whereas in Christianity, you get salvation right away, and it's free. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to work for it. If you commit your life to Jesus Christ and you are killed in an automobile accident 15 minutes later— you will be saved. You will go to heaven. One of the uh, things that differentiates Christianity from all other uh, religions is that most religions on the planet, and I think there's over 300 at last count, uh, there's a works system in in place where you have to put your faith in whatever religious doctrine they have and work, 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 work towards that end. Okay? Now, in Christianity, the work was done once and for all by Jesus. Right. Okay, you don't have to climb the ladder to reach God. God has reached down in the form of his Son, the reincarnate Christ, and, and yanked us up to be and, saved. And Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, that no one should boast. So God doesn't want you to try and work your way into heaven because that would give you the right to boast. He wants you to willingly and freely accept his free gift of salvation, and that makes Christianity worth investigating first. And the third point that Dr. Hazen made was that uh, with Christianity, there's a tremendous advantage to the worldview that you gain by becoming a Christian. So what do I mean by that? The worldview. The worldview is our foundational core of beliefs, and it's everything that uh, has happened in the last uh, uh, 2,000 years that have allowed Christians to become the people that they are. The uh, servants of God, the, the creators of, of hospital systems, uh, the, the mercy people, the soup kitchens, uh, all of the other things that uh, have spun off, let's say, our form of government. Uh, the three uh, branches of government that we have are based on the Trinity. Um, and so forth. I mean, there's just so much in Christianity that, that this worldview and lifestyle that we live in as America has, uh, Americans has been based on. Right, yeah. It fits, the Christian worldview fits the real world. When you look at the teachings of the Bible, the teachings of Christianity, they match what we discover in the real world, what we learn that people are really like. So, when issues come up like evil and pain and suffering and we want to know how to deal with these issues we find that the christian worldview fits what we recognize as true about the world so many other religions when there are very difficult issues they tell you that this is what's called maya or illusion so you're not really having pain you're not really suffering. Don't worry about the fact that your child died. That's just an illusion. Forget about it. And that just doesn't really seem to fit with what we as human beings think about the real world and the pain and suffering that we go through. What is different about Christianity is that Jesus came down, God incarnate, and suffered with us. So when we face suffering, we can know that God truly knows what we're going through because he suffered with us, and he told us to bear each other up. You know, Keith, one of my uh, favorite quotes uh, is a C.S. Lewis quote, um, and I read this to my wife on the way down here, Uh, and C.S. Lewis, uh, who is one of the great literary giants of the uh, 20th century and Oxford scholar, said this, He said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. Right. 
And that is one of the amazing things. When you become a Christian, you look around the world and you finally, everything makes sense. Everything inside of you, all the turmoil and things that go on inside of you make sense. And the turmoil in the world makes sense too. So that's that's the third reason that a thoughtful person ought to consider Christianity first is because of the terrific worldview fit. It seems to match with reality. Now, the fourth reason that a thoughtful person on a religious quest should start with Christianity is that it allows you to live a non-compartmentalized life, okay? What did Dr. Hazen mean by that, a non-compartmentalized life? Well, if your religion if the worldview of your religion doesn't fit well with what you find around you, the real world, you have to compartmentalize your life. You have to create a world, a kind of a non-religious real-world experience. That's your everyday going to work and and earning a living and, and going to the doctor and all those issues. And then you have your religious experience kind of on top of that in a different world, in a different compartment, so to speak, a different way of thinking in which things can be illusory and maybe reality doesn't even exist. But because you can't do that when you're trying to cross the street, you have to live this compartmentalized life. But in Christianity, you don't have to do that. A little clarification there, Keith. Um, if, If somebody is a Buddhist and they have to get into their mantra and do their thing and do their ohms and so forth, they're going to do that for two or three hours at nighttime in their home, which is outside of their everyday experience. And they can't really do that while they're at work because they can't do their their works to achieve that nirvana state. That's right. It's so, important that their brain is actually turned on and working so, when they're at work. Yeah, so they have to separate their, their religious life and experience totally separate from their workplace and their everyday life. Whereas at work, as a Christian, I can still pray with my patients and uh, be the thoughtful employer that I am uh, to my employees and uh, to make myself available to patients afterwards with telephone calls and so forth. So I, I do that, uh, and I don't have to separate my, my religion, my Christianity from my work life. That's right. And you follow evidence. You follow science when you're doing, when you're working. But when you're a Christian Sunday morning, you're also following the evidence, the science. You are loving God with all your mind as a Christian. Their scripture says, Isaiah 1, 18 says, God is telling us to come and let us reason together. Mm. Come and reason with me, he says. Use your brain. Use the brain that God gave you. And though your sins be as scarlet, he will make them as white as snow. Mm. Isaiah 41.21 says, Come make your case. Bring forth your persuasive arguments. And John 1.1 calls Jesus the logos, which is the word, but that also means logic. That's where we get the word logic from. He is the logic or the reason of God. So Christianity is a very logical, very rational, very evidence-based religion. And God does speak to us today uh, in the form of Jesus as well as the written word, the Bible. So God is still speaking to us uh, through those two uh, sources. Now, the the fifth and compelling uh, point that uh, Dr. Hazen made uh, about the five reasons that a thoughtful person on a religious quest should start with uh, Christianity is this one. Christianity has Jesus as its centerpiece. Now, the interesting thing here is that if you look at the other major world religions, they all want a piece of Jesus. They all want right. him as part of their action. Um, yeah, explain that a little better. Well, um, in the Quran, Jesus is mentioned as a prophet, mm-hmm. that he was born of a virgin, that he was a miracle worker, miracle worker, and will stand at the scales of justice at the end of time. Okay, so they have Jesus in their religion. Right. Now, in contradistinction, I'll, I'll make a comment about Muhammad. He only has two of those feathers in his hat. One was that he was a prophet. Now, this is the Quran now. Uh, and the other one is that he's going to stand uh, at the scales uh, of justice at the end of time. Mm-hmm. Okay, now... And that's not even—we're sh- sh- not even sure about that. It depends on some of the teachings, some of the Muslim teachers. Well, I'm just— Whether that's 
stating what's in the Quran, and, and, and basically, so Jesus has those four feathers, and, and Muhammad has the two feathers. Muhammad, or one and a half, yeah. Muhammad freely admitted that he was not a miracle worker and that he was not born of a virgin. That's right. So other other religions also have Jesus. I guess Buddhism and Mormons. Hinduism. Yeah, Mormons, Mormons have uh-huh. Jesus, and he's a kind of the angelic brother of Lucifer. And Buddhism thinks that he would be a teacher and maybe an avatar. So everybody wants a piece of Jesus. So if that's true, if you get Jesus with other religions, why not start with the religion that Jesus started? Why not start with the religion that has Jesus at the center of it? So look at John 1 14 it says and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory glory as of the only begotten from the father full of grace and truth everything all the grace all the mercy all the truth in Christianity comes from Jesus so you should consider him first Mm. so those are the five reasons why a thoughtful person on a religious quest, if you're a thoughtful person, if you're on a religious quest, start your quest with Christianity. It is testable. It gives you salvation as a free gift. It has an amazing worldview fit with the real world. It allows you to live a non-compartmentalized life, and Christianity puts Jesus at the center, not just on the side kind of adding him in. You are listening to Evidence for Faith. Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Michael Arrakis. And I'm Keith Kendricks. I'd like to mention, Keith, that this show is sponsored in part by uh, Grace Community Church uh, in uh, Waterford Works, uh, uh, New Jersey. You can check out their website at a aplaceforgrace.org. That's a place, the number four, grace.org. You can also uh, check us out um, on evidenceforfaith.com. That's our website, the number four, evidenceforfaith.com. We're also on Facebook and iTunes. You can download almost, I think we have 100 shows now on the uh, podcasts, Keith? Yep, almost. We're get, almost coming up to 100. We should have a special show on the 100th show. I'll have to calculate that out, which one that's going to be. And Keith, tell me, I know that you have the, uh, the latest data now on our most uh, popular uh, podcasts. Give us the top three or four, if you will. All right. The number one, we said last month that number one was intelligent design. We'd had over a thousand requests for that, and that was over a year old. But we did another episode on fulfilled prophecy, the Dead Sea Scrolls and fulfilled prophecies. That, after only two weeks, that had over 1,100 requests for. So that's jumped up to the number one podcast now, followed by that one from last year on intelligent design. We have to probably have to do another one on intelligent design. Well, really, last week's was really a lot about intelligent design. So maybe last week's show on the variation-inducing genetic elements that might jump well, up there. People like to. We're going to have Kirk Hastings on the show in the next few weeks, and we'll get into a lot of the intelligent design stuff then. That's true. That's true. The uh, third show was on arguments against evolution. That was a recent show that uh, I believe Kirk was in on that one also. Mm-hmm. Then back to then it goes back to some of the ones that were there last month, some fulfilled prophecy and was Jesus the smartest man who ever lived, those topics. Okay, folks, you can call us at area code 609-398-1020, or if you want to email us a question, you can do that too. Email us at email at evidence for faith. Again, that's the number four, evidenceforfaith.com. Email at evidenceforfaith.com, and we watch the email live, so I've already gotten some messages. So we will continue to monitor that. Okay, so that was Friday night, and then Saturday morning, if you're just joining us, what we're describing is a conference called Loving God with All Your Mind down in Maryland. And the next speaker was a young speaker by the name of McDowell and a really, really fascinating speaker. He is the son of Josh McDowell. Josh McDowell, yeah. 
Sean McDowell was his name. Yeah, Sean Got- McDowell was the speaker. Josh McDowell, who wrote uh, evidence um, or that- evidence that demands a verdict, and more evidence that demands a verdict. Yep. This is his son now. Uh-huh. Dynamic, very dynamic, and he has a heart for the youth, and he targets uh, his uh, ministry uh, as a youth ministry uh, and freely connects uh-huh. with them. And uh, he wrote actually a very interesting book, which I bought, Keith. I haven't uh, read it yet, obviously. But it's Apologetics for a New Generation, and it's a biblical and culturally relevant approach to talking about God, and it's really targeting the younger people. Well, we'll have to—maybe we can invite him on the show, and we can talk about that book. Yeah, I think so. I think it'll be a a good one, because um, um, we've done the statistics uh, on kids leaving the church, and it's it's frightening. And it has to do—not really because they've gone off to college. We've already lost them by the time they were in high school. That's right. Yep, there is so much infiltration of deceptive ideas from atheism that uh, kids are already doubting, already have intellectual questions and problems that are not being answered in their churches. So if you're a parent of a young kid that you're hoping remains a Christian, it is imperative that you learn some of the intellectual evidences that support the Christian faith or your child may decide that they do not want to be a Christian, that it's just not intellectually compelling. Yeah, about a third of the kids leave uh, the church uh, in high school basically because of intellectual skepticism and because science and history are not being interwoven in the church curricula to stimulate their minds. So they really don't know why they believe what they believe, and that's what this show is all about. Right, and that's one of the things that... Uh, Josh Henning was talking about on his show last hour. Josh is running the soundboard for us, and he mentioned that you have to know why you believe what you believe. It's imperative. And he was on a political discussion and talking about limited government. And if you don't know why you believe what you believe, that limited government was set up in America because of what the Bible has to say about human beings, mm-hmm. about how they behave in certain situations, and and the concept of limited government is there to protect us and to provide for the prosperity of all of us. If you forget what the Bible has to say about human beings, you're going to not believe that you need to have limited government. You're going to think that you can do some of these utopian schemes, some of these socialist plans to make the world a better place that wind up not really working. So you really want to know why you believe, and you want your kids to know why you why they believe. Why is the Scripture true? How do we know? What's the evidence that supports it? So one of the th- neat things that Sean did was pretend to be an atheist professor, and he pretended to be invited to the talk as an atheist, and uh, it was really a lot of fun. He had challenged the audience, had the audience try to ask him questions and, and challenge him with different things. So I, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was terrific. Yeah, he always had an answer, too. He would give a little uh, spin-off. For instance, he would say that, uh, well, you know, I'm a materialist. I, uh, I just believe that there's matter and that there's energy and that uh, by some chance all of this stuff came together and that life came into being, and uh, that's just the way it is. I don't think there's any room for God. And uh, then he would be challenged by uh, some of the uh, people in the audience about, you know, the the new um, uh, microscopic, electron microscopic evidence of what's going on in the intern the in- interior part of the cell. Right. With respect intelligent to... Intelligent design. Yeah, it's all intelligent design and, and uh, so forth, and that the complexity within the cell demands a designer... It just couldn't have happened by chance. So he, every time he would spin off his own viewpoint, uh, he would be challenged by the audience with a, um, uh, a Christian world viewpoint. Yeah, and the audience did pretty well. They were pretty informed, pretty knowledgeable about the evidences that support Christianity, so they did a good job. But one of the things that Sean explained is that young people are not being taught how to think, and that's part of the problem. They have to be taught how to think, why what they're asked to believe is really true. They're not being taught how to ask questions either in the science class. Right, how to be skeptical of what you're being told. Right, exactly. He also went over about how 
worldview helps us to get through true hardships, that a Christian worldview really does match reality, and then unless it does, I, I love the explanation that he gave, the example that he gave about MapQuest. If you use MapQuest to find your way around, and guess what? If MapQuest is wrong, that is, if the instructions on that piece of paper don't happen to match the real geography, the real way the roads are laid out, you are going to get lost. And it's the same with the religious view or a, a political view or a social view. If it doesn't match reality, you are going to get lost. I remember one time, Keith, I was going to pick up my son in the days before he was driving, and I ended up in Vineland on a dead-end street, and there was no house with the address that he was supposed to be at. Right. You know, he was with some friends at a, a little gathering, and, and I was supposed to pick him up and bring him home. I'm thinking to myself, my God, I'm lost. So I had to call on his cell phone and get the parent who was in the house to give me step-by-step directions to get me to their house. And that's also happened to me even with my um, um, my GPS, you know, so it does happen. So yep. if it doesn't match reality, you're going to get lost. And that's why so many of our kids have problems. So many of our Christian kids answer these questionnaires that you mentioned, Mike, uh, with wrong answers, thinking that they might— it's likely that they'll be reincarnated and, and all these things. But there was one in this study that he looked at, which was the National Study of Youth and Religion from 2005, the largest study of its kind. They found that those young people who had a biblical worldview, those who knew what Christianity was all about and why it was true, were more likely, it says, quote, they were more likely to act like Jesus and to respond with biblical answers. So, so it's not that Christians and the world act the same. If you have a biblical worldview, you will act differently than the world. So, Mike, anything else you have to say about that? Well, I think it all comes down to truth and knowledge. And I think that uh, we as parents— have to be equipped and we have to be prepared to understand the truth and to know these truths, to know why we know these truths, and to be able to share these truths with our children, right. and to be able to model that truth. Yes, I think the most impactful thing that we as Christian parents can do is model our Christianity seven days a week and not just live it one hour each Sunday. Right. He pointed you know, out that, that children unconsciously get their worldview. So from, and mostly from their parents. Yes, a lot from their schoolmates, a lot from their teachers, but mostly from their parents. So it's important that you train yourself and learn these things so that you can also train your children to know that they know the truth and why they know the truth. And the biblical worldview has to be foundational. It can't be something that you keep up in the attic one day a week and bring it out and show it off. Right. You know, it has to be a part of your, your, your living room day by day by day. Now, you'll appreciate this. He gave a very interesting example of something that he does in the classroom with his students. I believe he teaches in high school. He uses a big jar filled with starbursts, and then he'll give extra credit for kids that can guess the number of starbursts in the jar. And then he uses this as an object lesson for the difference between things like the number of starbursts in a jar and the flavor. What flavor do you like? And he shows how these are two completely different questions. There is no doubt that there's a specific number of starbursts in the jar. But for the question of what flavor do you like, you know, grape, strawberry, and I think Stephen was leaning over to me at this point and saying, it's cherry. The correct answer is cherry. Well, there really isn't a correct answer. So what do your kids think about that kind of a difference? Where does religion fall in? Is religion like the flavors of the starburst, or is a religion like the number of starbursts in the jar? Is it a concrete objective truth, or is it something subjective what about morals yeah truth is truth 
you know, yes, it's an objective truth, uh, and this comes back to why we should consider, why a thoughtful person should consider Christianity if they're on a quest for religion, because there's 300 of them out there, and you can get 300 different flavors of Baskin and, Robin I- Baskin and Robbins ice cream. Right. But which is the best ice cream, you know? Right. The really important things in your life are objective. How does religion affect your life, and how does it impact your life? You gave the example of saying, how does Christianity affect how I buy a car? Well, you know, when you ask kids a question like that, they kind of look at you funny, like, what are you talking about? What, what has Christianity got to do with buying a car? Well, the truth is that Christianity ought to impact every area of your life, every part of your life, including what car you buy. Is it just a car to show off with? Is it a car that's practical? Is it a car that allows you to save money so that you can use that for other good purposes? So Christianity affects every part of your life, and we have to teach that to our kids. So he talked about three basic things as ways to approach kids and passing on the truths of Christianity. One was to clarify the nature of truth. Kids today are taught that truth is subjective. It's like the flavor of Starburst. Whatever you want, that's your truth. So we have to clarify the nature of truth and teach them that it is truth is objective. Then we have to build relationships, not only with our kids, but the kids that we're teaching in, say, Sunday school. And ask them good questions, get them thinking, get them asking the tough questions themselves and being skeptical about some of the deceptive thoughts that are out there in the world today. You know, know, Keith, one of the other things that uh, came up over and over again is that our kids in youth group today are being entertained to death. They're not being given uh, things of substance. Um, They're throwing these, these pearls that are that are not really stimulating their minds, and they're not really learning anything, and they're getting bored to tears. Um, so we have to engage our kids in a meaningful, thoughtful, intellectual way right. to get them thinking about these truths and about how impactful these things are going to be, not only on them, but on the next generation. Instead of Instead of telling them the same Bible stories over and over for the tenth time. Exactly. Right. You know, and one of the great ways to do that, especially with the high school kids, is the Summit Ministries program. Yes, which, that's been a wonderful program. Yeah, which you've had firsthand experience. Uh, uh, you and I have taught that course together uh, yep. to our kids at church, but uh, I think your kids actually participated in that one summer. Yeah, actually we had Elizabeth on the show after she got out from Summit Ministries. So it's a wonderful program, and she says that it helped her a great deal in college. All right, Mike, anything else about Sean McDowell? Well, no, but uh, I think we ought to get him on the show and talk about his uh, book, uh, The Apologetics for a New Generation. Um, he's very dynamic. Um, he's hard-hitting, and I think that he'll be a hit uh, with the, uh, the teenage group. All right. He has a heart for those kids because they're being lost at a rapid rate. If you're just joining us... We are talking about a conference that Mike and I went to called Loving God with All Your Mind down in Maryland, and there were presenters there telling us about the evidence that Christianity is true and how we can learn this and share it with our children. So the next speaker was Steve Schrader, who has an MA in apologetics from Southern Evangelical Seminary. He did a great job, real tall guy, big guy, and did a great job talking about the historical reliability of the Bible. So that's something that we've talked about in past episodes, and there are podcasts out there if you want more information about that. And many of the things that he talked about we have covered, but we'll briefly just go over some of the highlights of his talk. He first broke he broke it down into Old Testament versus New Testament, And then each section he broke down into the manuscript evidence and the archaeological evidence. So so maybe Mike and I will go over with you a little bit about the Old Testament evidence and what the manuscripts are. Well, I I thought uh, the very beginning of his uh, talk was interesting, Keith, because he threw up a uh, slide with 
with all of the uh, major works of antiquity compared to the number of copies of the Old Testament that we have that are, that are um, obviously uh, manuscripts going back thousands of years. And uh, there are over 10,000 manuscripts uh, of the Old Testament that we have uh, in the museums and, and the various um, uh, Bible colleges and so forth. Right. Uh, Why don't you explain what manuscripts are? Well, manuscript literally means handwritten. Uh, manos, uh, mean, meaning man, and scribe script is written, written word. So it's a, a handwritten copy, and mm. typically it was either on parchment or leather, uh, and then rolled up as a scroll. So there's more than 10,000 Old Testament scrolls or manuscripts that are still in existence. Right, many more, whereas, many more than 10,000. Whereas if you look at um, the other great works of antiquity, like Homer's Iliad, there's, uh, there's 643 of them in existence. Demosthenes, there's 200 copies in existence. Herodotus, there's 8. Plato, 7. Pliny, 7. Tacitus, 20. Caesar, 10. So the number of manuscripts that we have in the form of religious works, Old Testament, far exceed the number of all of the other great manuscripts of antiquity right. by tenfold. I mean, if you add up all the other manuscripts that are considered secular writings of antiquity, uh, the Old Testament documents outnumber them by ten to one. Right. And this is one of the supports for the truth of a document. There's, there's many things that scientists look at to see how trustworthy a manuscript is. One is how many copies do we have? How many manuscripts are there? Secondly, how close in time from the original to the copies that we have is there? Then they look at how accurate is it and how reliable. So those are the areas that have to be examined to make sure that you know you've got something that can be trusted. So you mentioned how many manuscripts. What about how close to the original documents they are? Well, for the Old Testament, it's very, very close. The oldest passage that we have is something called the Katif Hinnon Silver Scroll, and that goes back to the 6th century B.C. Now, according to many skeptics, the Old Testament wasn't written until the 5th century. So this blows that out of the water because it's it's word for word from the Old Testament, and it also happens to contain the word Yahweh that many skeptics thought was added later into the Old Testament. So that's a tremendous advantage to have a document that close to the original. Then he went through some of the other things that we've covered, the Nash papyrus from the 2nd century B.C. that has the Ten Commandments in it and the Shema. The Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament that was made in 250 B.C., and that then provides a second avenue of comparison to the main line of the Old Testament because the Septuagint was translated into a different language and then carried forward in that language. So we can compare the two and see how accurately they were translated. Uh, He talked about the Samaritan Pentateuch, which was another separation from the main line of the Old Testament. This happened in the 4th century B.C., And so we're able to compare that also to see how accurately these have been transmitted. And then finally, he talked about the Dead Sea Scrolls, which, of course, we did that two or three weeks ago. We talked about the Dead Sea Scrolls and the incredible advance in archaeology that that provides for it, knowing that the Old Testament is incredibly reliable because it's so close to the time that it was actually written. And it just proves that the uh, Jewish scribes were so meticulous in their translation and that the number of errors that were committed were, were minuscule uh, to the point where there was no, no real um, difference in meaning or doctrine. Um, you know, some of the words might have been inverted, uh, but nothing of major consequence was, would change the meaning of a passage. Right. So. Well, then he talked about the archaeology. What kind of archaeological evidence? And I guess we, we've only got a few more minutes left to the show. So we'll just briefly go into some of the archaeology that supports the evidence. One of the 
really amazing finds that happened in the 1970s is 16,000 tablets called the Ebla tablets were discovered that date back to 2300 BC. So this is the time of the patriarch. So you're going all the way back to Abraham. And this series of tablets very carefully described what things were like in those days. Things like commerce, business, legal transactions, religious institutions and ceremonies. What kinds of things, what was world, the world like back then? And what we find is that the descriptions in the Bible exactly match the kind of scenarios and milieu of the ancient world described in the Ebla tablets. So it cannot be true that what the skeptics say, that the Old Testament was written hundreds of years later and carried on by oral tradition. Actually, it must have been written down at the same time to be this accurate, just as there was writing in the Ebla tablets. And I think, Keith, one of the most interesting finds, the Ipuwer um, papyrus, that's I-P-U-W-E-R, papyrus was discovered in Egypt in 1828, and it goes back to 1300 B.C., where it describes the biblical plagues um, that were uh, brought on by Moses to Pharaoh. Yeah, and the we've plagues. read, we have read that on the air. So yes. if the, you look back at one of the podcasts, you will pick that up and be able to hear the Ipuer papyrus. So it's an incredible amount of data, biblical city names that are described in the, uh, going back to the Ebla tablets that are in the Bible Sodom, Zeboam, Adma, Hazar. Megiddo, Jerusalem, Gaza, all of these were thought not to exist back then. Biblical names like Nahor, Israel, Eber, Ishmael, Michael, all described in Ebla, the Ebla tablets, words that were not thought to have been developed until later and thought to be proof that the Bible was written much later actually appear in the Ebla tablets, words like Tihom, which means the deep in the in uh, Genesis 1 uh, even the name of Canaan and the Ebla tablets the religion what was the religion it was a religion of one God it was a monotheistic religion those times and he was the creator of the heavens moon stars and sun out of nothing just as described in the Bible William Albright a famous archaeologist said this he said archaeology has confirmed the historicity of the Bible Okay, join us again next week. This has been Evidence for Faith. We'll be back Sunday at 4 p.m. And always remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true.